0: ladies and gentlemen hello and welcome to the podcast i'm joe genie this is ambassadors at large so i don't remember which rambo movie it is but in one of them because i've not actually seen any of them but in one of them uh rambo is sent back to uh to vietnam and he asks do we get to win this time And I feel like that's a a pertinent question for this day and age. We seem to be unable to win wars in the 21st century. And uh, uh, here to talk about that, I've got uh, my good friend, Michael Davies. He's a freelance researcher and editor who spent five years at the National Defense University in various capacities. And he's the co-author of Human Terrain Teams, An Organizational Innovation for Sociocultural Knowledge in Irregular Warfare. And he's the co-editor of *Changing Mindsets to Transform Security: Leader Development for an Unpredictable and Complex World*. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, as you can tell, I definitely worked for DoD just on those titles alone.
0: <laughs> they're they're incredibly they're incredibly long, and I'm incredibly proud of myself for having having uh, um, yeah. read them. Start to finish without without stuttering or stopping or, or anything <laughs> like that. Um, they do
1: roll off the tongue a little bit. I will admit you know. that they're very boring. They're very bland, but they do roll. Um, have,
0: have you ever have you ever seen the movie In the Loop?
1: Yes. There's the, Absolutely. The movie, yeah, the Tip Fiddle.
0: Yeah, or, the, or yeah, or they um, where they 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 name the the War Committee with the most boring possible name, and yep. they call it the Future
1: Planning Committee. <laughs> yep. yeah. Uh, I loved so many moments of that. <laughs>
0: Um, so, uh, so, so I've asked you to come on the podcast to talk about this essay that you wrote, uh, Thomas Ricks over at, at foreign policy had this essay contest and you submitted an essay called, uh, entitled, what we need to do is admit that we are unable to win our wars. And, uh, this just seems to be a very pressing problem. Not just, I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan come to mind, the ongoing fight against the Islamic state comes to mind. Uh, it, this just seems to be a recurring problem. So if you're going to sum up your argument. Mm -hmm. Why do we not win our wars anymore? Uh,
1: Well, as I say, the very first line in the essay is uh, that the United States of America, as a government, as a military, and as a society, is functionally and cognitively incapable of winning a war. Uh, Simply that the institutions, um, both at the human level as well as the structures, so we're talking about Congress, we're talking about think tanks, we're talking about the budget process, all of those things, um, just... The way they are built makes us as a country and, um, like I said, as a government a military and a society, the three centers of gravity, um, as much as I disagree with that term these days, uh, just when they interact together, make it impossible to actually win a war. Um, Now, it's very specific. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of stuff uh, to unpack from that single sentence. Um, but uh, a lot of my research, particularly in the past couple of years, has focused on this very question of victory. What does winning look like? How do you determine victory? And uh, like most things in U.S. strategic studies, World War II just overwhelms so much, simply because it was such a great war, um, capital G, great war. Um, And just had such a a lasting impact on the U.S. and the the, the entire world writ large. We live under an entire international security system built upon um, who won, you know, those wars with only some, well, very significant, but also almost historically minor in some cases, um, uh, additions and subtractions to that system. At the end of the day, it is still the very same system, and you only have to look at the Security Council and the United Nations as proof of that. Um, But this question of victory, what what at the end of the day victory truly is, um, particularly for war, so the moment you actually get into Um, Well, this is very hard, but I don't want to say something like true combat or anything. But um, when you go above a certain threshold, so say if you use the term mission, um, that could mean, you know, some special forces dropping into a zone. You know, the bin Laden raid, that's a mission. Uh, If you call something an operation, that could be something like the attempted rescue of um, the hostages during the Iranian uh, hostage crisis uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but we, and, like-
0: we, we should mention also that these things are, are single, as far as their political objectives, uh, mm. Mika Zanko wrote, wrote a great book called Between Threats and War uh, mm-hmm. about these sort of limited military operations where it's like airstrikes or a, a single operation yes. designed to achieve, and, and basically these things accomplish the military side, you know, we're, we're targeting something, we hit it, about half the time, according to Zanko. Yes. But the political objective, actually getting the other actor to change his or her behavior, that only happens about 6% of the time. So these are extraordinarily ineffective. Usually, Vic. I mean, when we think of Victory in the World <laughs> War II sense—we're talking total victory, the destruction of cities, the yes. unconditional surrender of whole nations, yes. uh, that sort of thing—which usually comes at a tremendous cost that that uh, we may not be willing to pay at the moment. But it <laughs> also raises yes. interesting moral questions about <laughs> you know whether or not you know we could make is maybe we could make Islamic State surrender if we did to Raqqa what we did to Dresden, but should yeah. we? Probably <laughs> not.
1: Probably not. But um, like, that's a very good point. Um, Mika's book is uh, very good. I've had my disagreements with him on a, on a couple of things, but um, is still a, a very good uh, analyst. But uh, at the end of the day, it does get down to that, not just political objective... Um, because that can just be, oh, we want you to change your um, your attitude or the way you engage with us. You know, something like the Libya operation in the late 80s. Uh, and even what happened to Iraq throughout the 90s, just uh, with the sanctions and um, the airstrikes on um, various parts of Saddam's military and security apparatus. It was an attempt to get him to cooperate with what we wanted and he agreed with at the end of uh, the Gulf War, but victory—the way I define it, and the way most theorists define it—is um, well, but, uh, you know, in a very nice little way, um, which is a better peace. Now, peace doesn't have to have to mean harmony here; um, it just means a, uh, another term would be order. So, you're creating a better security order. So, it's something and it uh, to to make sure that. The original trouble that came up um, will not be uh, renegotiated at some some period so this this has to work also at the local at the regional and at the international level Um, so really what it is about is basically creating a new political construct or if you want to call it a social contract but you have to do it at those three levels for it to be effective and that's what victory is is basically a renegotiation of the political contract if internally to whatever whatever area you're um, dealing with as how they moving upwards um, deal with the international system at, at, as a, at a whole, uh, sorry as a whole. Um, it is that the renegotiation of a political contract that they accept as well. and it's something that has to be self-sustaining, uh, it has to be viable, uh, and uh, basically they have to become a willing participant of that order. That's what victory looks like. So this can work for a a very, you know, missions are one thing, but um, sustained campaigns or significant um, uh, campaigns as well, all the way up to a full-blown global war. But in particular, everything in in between, but most importantly for the U.S., because a global war is very unlikely. It is the limited, localized wars that we always seem to get in great trouble with. And that's how you end up with Iraq and Afghanistan. It goes back to Somalia, even the Balkans a little bit. Um, but uh, in Vietnam is in the same, same boat as well. It's these localized regional conflicts that we have this outsized, because we have this outsized view of a World War II-type victory where everyone just surrenders and everything is good after that, we don't understand that victory, surrender, victory, defeat, victory in war um, are an ongoing negotiation, for lack of a better term, during combat. This is not something where you can achieve a pure military victory because that's not the actual nature of of the war, sorry, the character of the war that you're engaged in. And this this is where we get in so much trouble. So how, how much of
0: this is us and how much of this is them? Because, I mean, a lot of what we try to do as a military is to, to prevent wars from ever happening. And we're really good at that. I mean, this is one of in the 21st century has seen very few wars between states, direct yes. wars between states. Basically, it doesn't happen anymore because of the international <laughs> sovereign order that we helped set up. And in yes. the 90s, when, you know, in the Balkans, when we ultimately did intervene and, and the Arnott and Dayton Accords helped establish the, the partition and breakup of, of of Yugoslavia, and when we intervened in Kosovo, we were intervening to defend somebody from somebody else, and, and mm-hmm. Iraq in ninety one was the same way. And we're really good at doing that, but we're mm-hmm. not good at at getting involved in these internal conflicts or, or state collapses. And you said that that one of the goals of peace is to establish uh, a, a victory is, mm-hmm. is to establish a uh, an order. Yes, and a, new order. Out- yeah, a yeah. new order that's better than the old order yes. a, a lot of times we seem to run into trouble when we are trying to bring order to places where there is none or yes. where, where there was order and we destroyed it in the case of the mm-hmm. Iraq intervention in you 2003 right. yes. so how yeah. much of this is just that we're picking fights that don't lend themselves to easy answers uh, as opposed to we'll get to so, so some of the stuff on our side, you know, our military and how it's structured and how effective it is. But but how much of this, first of all, is, is them as opposed to us?
1: Uh, well, first off, I'd say that one and you know, two major reasons for the lack of great power conflict wasn't mm-hmm. simply just the structure of the current order; it was you know, nuclear weapons. Um, and also overwhelming U.S. might in multiple fields for a very long time. And, and in a lot of cases, there is also significant evidence to suggest this within Soviet's own archives, is that they never really had the capacity to challenge the U.S.-led international order. All they wanted was almost what Putin wants now is just to carve out a big enough zone of influence um, that they, uh, that they could just maintain and hold you know, forward into the future. But part of that, because the Soviets also felt so hemmed in and knew that the risks of getting out of them, trying to get out of that containment, was so high, this is why they turned to such low-grade answers. So this is where you end up with uh, Khrushchev in the late 50s, early 60s, um, turning and saying we're going to start arming um, these rebels, you know, all across the planet to basically, you know, the, the death by a thousand cuts type thing. So this is how you end up with wars in Cuba uh, and Cubans going around in various places. So we're talking Latin America and, uh, and South America and Central America as well. Um, you know, thing, wars in Angola and all over Africa, you know, using decolonization as a way to sort of pinprick the, um, the Western order uh, because they knew that the U.S. couldn't handle itself at that, um, in that, that space, the spectrum of conflict over there. But what happens is because the U.S. intrinsically, um, it's part of its its military culture and even uh, social culture, has this view of war and warfare that is built from the, the Civil War, and you can see this again in World War II, is that you fight militarily with whatever you've got uh, until they're exhausted the, the enemy is exhausted and then you impose a piece that is entirely beneficial to you upon them. They might they might like what benefits accrue to them over time but at the end of the day you are imposing something upon them. When, the, the, when and this works well particularly when you have a, a mode of warfare that is built upon front lines, um, that's fine you know it's, it's just a matter of attrition and industrial level production and, and other things like that. But when it is uh, low grade, when it is, um, you know, decentralized, and in particular, and this is what really gets, and this gets into what lesson one I was talking about, when it's political. So when it, when the mode of warfare being engaged is in, inherently political at the time it's being implemented, rather than apolitical, which is the way the U.S. predominantly sees the engagement of force, it is just, it's a tool, it is a, uh, a technical function of uh, achieving an eventual end. But when the war, the force being used is political at the very moment it's used in every situation, the U.S. starts to fumble. And often this is just because it doesn't understand that it's in another country who don't think um, the way Americans do, uh, as well as you know cultural bias over racism and a uh, variety of other things. But it can just be not understanding that, Forces used for political in this space because they are fighting over political power and it's multifaceted. Uh, and that's what these wars uh, intrinsically have. And Balkans is a very good uh, example of this precisely because when Clinton was um, uh, thinking about engaging in uh, in the Balkans in the mid 90s, early, uh, late 90s, he was relying on, um, um, I think it was Fred Kaplan, I was one of the Kaplans. Um, Balkan Ghosts book. Now this specifically said that it was just an ancient hatred. This was false. This was, this was unequivocally false. It, this was a contest for power, for, um, for resources, and just for blatant control of uh, areas within what they defined as Greater Serbia, and that that's what caused the Civil War at the end of the day. But because uh, U.S. policymakers didn't get that, they just thought, oh, we'll show a bit of force. Everything will be fine. We can take over and we can just impose something. Of course, that's not what happened. And it was—it took a guy, um, I'm forgetting his name now, um, who, who uh, negotiated Dayton. Uh, Holbrook, Richard Holbrook. Holbrook. Yeah, Richard Holbrook. Um, you know, it took a guy like him who was in Vietnam and saw these types of things and uh, basically built his career personality around understanding these types of things, it took him to bring them together and to be able to accept um, what eventually was uh, both imposed but also agreed to um, within the Balkan territory. But um, the people around Holbrook, above him, whether it's in Congress, a lot of the military guys, as well as the president himself, didn't get that.
0: No, no, this is, this yeah. is why
1: he had to pull so far away from um, the White House and what they were doing into saying, I want control of this situation. A lot of people call this arrogance. It's it's literally just this is how you control these types of situations is you have to pull people out of this situation when your advisors and your uh, those in authority above you don't get it, uh, in quotation marks. And uh, so Holbrook's actually a really good example of how to do things right in a lot of ways. Um uh, on this very specific issue, that, um, that it is fundamentally about politics. In other words, it's about the domestic uh, resources, any like uh, domestic, oh, I'm trying to give the word, I mean, uh, just, just sort of the apportionment of power. However you want to define that, that's what it's about. That's what war is about. But when uh, it, you're engaged in a civil war, whether you're engaging in insurgency, counterinsurgency, uh, even some facets of, um, you know, major state conventional war, I mean, you have to deal with things like alliances and all the rest of it. Um, politics is encountered. It's just the magnitude of it differs. But it's it's not understanding that it is the politics of the area rather than simply the U.S. coming in and saying, all right, we're in charge. We've got the we've got the big guys. You will now you will now be a Jeffersonian democracy. That just yeah, simply doesn't.
0: The, work. The, the the most one of the one of my least favorite phrases, not in in the principle of the thing, but the it's one of these sort of like, just. Red flags go off all over the place is The idea of a government of national unity. As soon as I hear yes. a call for a government of national unity, I'm like, "That this is you, you failed. This is it's yes. it's like using the word root causes in a political debate. Yes, <laughs> you've lost the shocking. debate. Now, now yeah. one of the one of the things you talk about is is um, in your words the the quote incompetence of crafting end states mm-hmm. end quote whether were whether in planning in execution or even at all in the first place end mm-hmm. quote. You say it's yep. constant and structural. Yes. Now, with the Balkans, it took us a long time, but it also kind of took the parties a long time. I mean, this is one of, mm. I, I don't want to jump down a huge Balkan rabbit hole here, but yeah. <laughs> one, one of the ways that 95 that worked was because the United States intervened to achieve a, a direct and viable end. Croatia yeah. had already been, had already seceded. It had already taken back its territory. It mm. had already taken back the Kraina. The the major fault line had already mostly been settled. And it was really just a question of punishing the body Bosnian Serbs for ethnic cleansing, and, mm-hmm. and Bosnia itself had been largely divided, and the, the Dayton Accords effectively kind of codified that division into a political mm-hmm. structure that paralyzed yes. the country. Yes. So this is not perfect, but it's definitely order, and it's mm-hmm. definitely better than what you had in 92 and 93. Yes. So we intervened to create a viable end state it Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like we ever really I don't want to say we didn't have a plan because there are really smart people thinking about this all the time Mm -hmm. at the Pentagon but it almost especially with Iraq it seemed like we, we we willfully disregarded the almost inevitable civil war that was going to break out between the Sunnis and the Shiites, the, the various cleavages between the Shiites and who was allied with who, the tribal divisions, the divisions along along, along personality, who was being backed by Iran, who wasn't, this sort of thing. It's like we it, we didn't really account for that and just sort of figured that if everyone voted then <laughs> and security was restored, then everyone would be happy. Everything it, would be fine. yeah Yeah. it it seems somalia was the
1: same thing as well
0: yeah Uh, Yeah. it's it seems like we there it's a question of whether there was a viable outcome in some Mm -hmm. of these places what it would have looked like but Mm -hmm. it seems like one of our biggest problems is to use the david petraeus line tell me how this ends we don't think about how it ends we don't seem to have an idea of how it ends and we aren't willing to countenance some of the ideas that would end it for instance in iraq we never seriously considered partition and now partition (laughs) might be happening anyway yes Uh, it's it's like we we don't really think about the end and we aren't willing to countenance some of the ends that the parties on the ground might want as opposed to the ones that we want
1: Exactly. And, and that's part of it. it. It's not so much, we do actually care about the, the final state. I mean, in Iraq and Afghanistan, that was definitely desired. Problem is, it had no relationship to reality on the ground. And this is why I talk about the incompetence of, craft, of crafting, you know, in planning and execution, or even at all, um, is just, you know, we have this idea, this is what you will be. Um, this is how it'll work. This is the way it's going to go down. And you must accept it, because we've now taken over you. Um probably like i said and you said as well is it had no relationship to the reality on the ground i mean there was that great quote about bush quite likely and highly likely not even understanding that there is a difference between um the uh, sunnis and shia in the first place he I, i'm pretty sure he knew about the kurds but that was about it um and and this is what i mean it's uh, just no caring about what is actually life, what life is like on the ground, where are the political power structures. Um, A lot of this was attempted to be remedied um, by, you know, what you mentioned right at the beginning, my bio, the human terrain teams. Um, Problem is, these were just, uh, intel sensors. They could only tell people, you know, certain tribes live here, a certain network of individuals live in this valley, however you want to define it, how they wanted to define it. They, to, uh, define it. Um, they never understood the uh, political interaction of daily life um, from the lowest level to the highest level. And when you go into a country and take it over and you don't already understand that, um, you've already failed as far as I'm concerned, the best you can do at that point is maybe just create something stable enough that can slowly work itself out over a generation. And in case of Iraq and Afghanistan, that's just not going to happen.
0: Have you read Rory Stewart's The Prince of the Marshes?
1: I haven't read that one, no.
0: It's, very, it's, it's, a, it's a rip-roaring good read, but, but Stewart himself basically becomes the governor of a province and he's yeah. dropped in by the British military. And his experience is that he walked across Afghanistan, wrote a book about it, which is, mm. you know, quite courageous. And, you know, he has, he has a lot of world experience and he spoke Farsi and they were like, you're hired. Yeah. He, he yeah. he'd never been to Iraq before. And it just seemed like a lot of the people come. I mean, you know, the, we, we don't, one of the things that I, I know in the state department, the United States does is it rotates people every, every three or four years to new, Whole position. different regions <laughs> yeah. of the world yep. and doesn't let people really become, you know, a, an Iraq hand mm. or a regional yep. hand, as, as it were, as opposed to the way, for example, the British Empire used to do it, where you'd have, you know, the British Raj, you'd have people who would be in one little province in India for 20 or 30 yes. years. And Stuart in his book kind of writes longingly about how the British Empire used to do things. He's clearly like a guy who was born in the wrong century, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it it does raise some issues. I mean, some of the. I mean, I remember when Christopher Hill was point, appointed to be ambassador to Iraq. He mm-hmm. had previously been the the guy who who ran, who op, was our, our point man in dealing with North Korea. And yes. he had done a very good job over that. And, mm-hmm. and so they said, okay, go to Iraq. He doesn't yeah, speak Arabic. Back. He does he has no experience in that particular region. Mm-hmm. Really, really good diplomat. But. Yeah. How much of this is a hindrance where a lot of people were put into positions of authority, basically running the country in the aftermath of the fall of Saddam, who didn't know anything about the country because they couldn't because they'd never been there before?
1: Well, in most cases, and I'd say right up to about 2010, just about everyone who went in was in that exact category. Um, But if I could just really quickly take it back for a second, talking about the Balkans again, was that um, one reason why... Um, uh, the, the Croats were able to push back the Serbian forces was precisely because the US sent in troops and trainers, kind of like what they're doing uh, in Iraq right now. The other, the only difference is is that they actually want to learn and they actually want to fight, which the Iraqis mainly Shia, Iraqis do not want to do. Um, and uh, one of my co-authors Chris Lamb was actually a part of that, uh, that effort and has written a monograph on it since, and so that, that's quite interesting. But the other part of that Precisely because they did that, they pushed everyone to the point of exhaustion, and particularly the Serbs. And so the only reason any new order, you know, a peace treaty, Dayton, all the rest, was able to occur was because everyone was exhausted um, militarily and financially and resource-wise. And, uh, and
0: this also raises some interesting moral questions. So like yes. the, if I was going to make an analogy to, for example, today's fight against Islamic State and the ongoing war in, in we, we call it the Syrian civil war, but it's really Syria and Iraq. Yeah. The, 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 the equivalent of the Croats is the Kurds. They have this yeah. tiny sort of moon shaped crescent moon shaped <laughs> sliver of land surrounding everybody else. Uh, they've been the victims of ethnic cleansing and by God, they're going to take back their territory. And if they have to ethnically cleanse everybody who's in it to, in order to do it, they're going to do it. And we're going to help them do this. And that raises some moral quandaries, but it also raises some territorial questions. The outcome mm-hmm. of, of, of Yugoslavia was the clean partition, uh, Bosnia notwithstanding into yes. identity-based states that that yes. had an interest in maintaining an order and there was basically no room for revisionism like the, the, yes. the Croats literally cleared all the serbs out of the Krajina mm-hmm. to the point where they were politically defeated as 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 a force and and insert and there was this sort of quid pro quo where the this tides Exhausted, like you say, agreed where basically the the Croats would stop interfering in Herzegovina, where there were Croats, Mm -hmm. in exchange for Milosevic no longer backing the Serbs who were fighting in in what was then Croat territory in in Croatia. And this worked because there was a viable outcome where everybody got a stake. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really talking about that in Iraq, Afghanistan. I mean, it's not that I, I'm I'm like woohoo, let's partition Syria, Iraq, mm-hmm. and, and Afghanistan, and, and especially not Afghanistan. Um, but and, and that'll solve all of the problems. But mm-hmm. the 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 Balkans had an end state. Yes. It took a while for them to get there, and they used dubious and 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 very. The methods that I mean, were the, the, war crimes but yeah. uh, to yeah. get there but they did and, eventually and this, get I mean, there it's really horrible yeah. to
1: say but like that can be the price of peace um, you know a, a very uh, you know Henry Kissinger type comment right there but um, uh, Andrew uh, not Andrew um, Edward Lutwark wrote a, uh, an article I think it was in Foreign Affairs maybe um, in the late 90s called them um, uh, give war a chance basically said until these people uh, exhaust themselves you know you're never really going to be able to impose something upon them that will maintain itself so it's often just to um, better off just to let them uh, fight it out to the the bitter end simply because at the end of the day you know whatever will be left will be um, will be ordered and will be stable and stable enough at least and uh, there can be a certain amount of imposition without excess US, Western um uh, imposition, you know, resources, sending in troops and things like that. I mean, if you remember back, Tony Blair was wanting to send in troops, which would have been 80,000. Um, problem is, you probably would have had, had to double that a short while later simply because you're fighting in ma- mountain territory that people have been fighting in for 20 years um, and uh, were very good at it. So there would have been substantial loss of life. Um uh, on the western side for that But uh, the other one is um, What has been termed the Godzilla option So based on the last Godzilla movie uh, You know Let them fight It's a, the same type of mentality um, That you're better off just to let them go till the, the very bitter end uh, Just simply so you'll know That the you'll have a definitive winner at the end Whatever it may be And then you deal with them after that fact uh, there, it's, it's, there very, a, it's very yeah. cruel I mean particularly You know, growing up in the 90s, um, uh, becoming intellectually aware in the 2000s, post-September 11, and all the rest of it. You know, we grew up with the humanitarian intervention, the idea of making the world a better place, uh, etc., etc. So that can offend a lot of people, but is also either intervening to stop a war, which hasn't really stopped and will just continue on. Um, You know, the Congo Civil War has been going on for, what, 25, 30, 35 years, something like that. Um, you can end up, end up killing a lot more people than and a direct intervention at the time than you can just sort of over letting something continue uh, till the bitter end.
0: But, but so part, of, it, part of it was also that we intervened at the right moment in yeah. order to affect a, a decisive
1: outcome, which and, can be pure yeah. luck. I mean, at the end of the day, they could have gone any way, and it's just how people respond to that, you just never know.
0: Yeah. Uh, n- now how, uh, we've talked a little bit about about. The the them side of this, and, and I could talk about this all day about how how <laughs> problematic Afghanistan is, uh, yeah. and, and just structurally. But well,
1: here's another thing really quickly is uh, it's now been released, uh, I'm trying to remember the article, that uh, some of the leaders of what was left of the Taliban in 2001, two, three, and even up to four were willing to um, come into the fold and to say, you won, we'll put down our arms, um, uh, you know, we will totally accept whatever comes our way, provided that basically southern Afghanistan gets to rule itself. Uh, gets to rule itself away from centralized Kabul and the U.S. And the U.S. doesn't put it in. But the agreement would be, you know, no foreign fighters, no al-Qaeda, no nothing like that. Just leave us alone. Let us be our own self, our own cultures, our own valleys. Uh, and we'll be fine. Problem is nobody was willing to listen. No one was willing to offer that. No one was willing to engage in them, whether from uh, you know the central Afghan government, Karzai, or uh, from the u s. And this goes into not understanding how Afghanistan works, as well as just a biased u s. belief that, hey, we won uh, anyone who opposes us is now an evil doer rather than, fighting for can what was often, you know, very local reasons, or even I still like, uh, Kilcullen's, uh, accidental guerrillas you know, we're only fighting just because, Hey, it's something to do.
0: Yeah. No. And I mean, you, you have a lot of, I mean, you, you, you demographically you have a, a basically endless population of, of young disaffected, unemployed males pissed off about corruption to draw on. There's, yep. there's lots of, I mean, you, you, if you want to have a militia in Afghanistan and fight, you can do it. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not difficult um, but it, it kind of reminds me of the this great line I, I don't remember which Israeli politician said it, but it was right after the six-day war. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to attribute this to ben-gurion but, uh, but it, it could have been it could have been a number of, of <clears throat> vaguely fatalistic Israeli leaders <laughs> who said but basically basically sort of like we won, but what did we win? The Arabs are still going to be there. Yeah. and they're still going to hate us. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a part of this where it's sort of like you have identity groups, you have conflict dynamics you have different centers of power and and you have this the sort of pashtun and everybody else split Mm -hmm. in in afghanistan for example and the taliban are drawing almost exclusively from pashtun ranks and this spills across the border and they have cross-border sanctuary and they could just go hide over in pakistan which has its own reasons for supporting them and we have the the capacity militarily to maintain our presence in afghanistan and continue to beat these guys mm-hmm. tr- you know in, t- in terms of of tactical execution we can yep. beat like, these guys I- back I- all the time and we can keep doing this, this mm-hmm. is the sort of mowing the lawn analogy which is uh, terribly glib way of talking about human lives but we can do this but but we we would effectively have to do it forever unless we deal with the actual dynamics of the country
1: and again this is why i bring in the whole idea of social contracts and political orders at the local level um until afghanistan basically either brings uh, the taliban into the political process which might now be not a good idea simply because they are a military force. They have control of great swaths of Afghanistan and um, you know, with the US pulling out, they're getting more and more by the day. And I mean, it's, it's, very much, scary.
0: it's much better to do this sort of thing when, when you're whooping them on, on yes. the battlefield. They're much
1: more Which, amenable. Like I said, it was 2001 through 2004 where they were willing to say you won, just bring us into the political process and let us run our own little areas and, and everything will be fine. Um, and no one was there to, to offer him. And again, this was Holbrook, This is when he went in in uh, 2009-10. This is what he wanted to do. But he was completely marginalized precisely because that's what he was trying to do, because a lot of uh, the military guys uh, or sort of the more militaristic members of um, you know, the NSC and, and other places no, one just wanted to implement the counterinsurgency option, the, the population-centered counterinsurgency option.
0: Va- Va- uh, Vol- I just listened to Vali Nasser's book about this on, on yeah. audio tape, and th- they've got a very impressive reader, uh, a guy with a very deep voice reading it, very, very <laughs> authoritative. It's mm-hmm. just, it, there's... It, it's I mean, he's he's scathing in his appraisal. It's basically like a typical sentence would be something to the effect of, you know, working with Richard Holbrook, we came up with a solution for Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and several yeah. Iran, and several other countries. But the yeah. White House cut us off at the knees, you know, and just yes. like that. And yes, and he's he I mean, he he makes no I mean, it's pretty explicit where where so this brings us around to we've talked about them. Let's talk about us what is Mm -hmm. is it a is it different centers of power in the u.s government Mm -hmm. civil military splits what what is the just the the apparatus is just so huge because it's grown over all all of these years and it's been and some of the institutions are 60 years old Mm -hmm. what is it that that, i mean if you were if you were going to put your finger on on what what causes problems what would you say Mm -hmm. that it is
1: Well, that's a great segue um, into what I termed lesson two and three. Uh, So, lesson two focuses on how the military is currently structured. Lesson three is the US national security system writ large. So, a lot of this relates to the uh, sort of the civilian apparatus. So, we're not just talking the CIA, NSA, things like that. We're talking about um, you know the uh, office of the Secretary of Defense, which is now absolutely massive, with multiple hundreds of thousands of people working technically for the Secretary of Defense. Um, this also goes into the NSC, but it also now we're talking about state. Uh, the State Department, and uh, how other interagencies who do have an impact on the use of U.S. force, not just military force, even though they definitely can, but just U.S. power, U.S. force, you know, from um, the uh, finance, sorry, the Treasury Department, sort of um, overseas financi- uh, financial um, training and things like that, the Agricultural Department. Um, interestingly, uh, the Ag Department also helped together uh Teams to go into Afghanistan to teach the farmers how to be better farmers, and there, there, there is no public assessment of that program. But everyone we've ever talked to says these guys were great, um, and it wasn't just sort of um, you know by chance or anything. A lot of it because seemingly farmers all over the world can talk to one another in a similar language, even though they ha- they don't have a specific you know uh, language capability to do it. They, they they just understand um, you know. The, the common language of the land, if you will. Um, and they could sort of see what a lot of guys were doing wrong and why it would work better. But, the, you know, there were multiple agencies, multiple departments, all relate to U.S. power. None of them really work together. And in particular, they do what is known, and this comes from um, someone in Vietnam, uh, Robert Comer, who was in, in charge of the CORDS program. He called it Bureaucracy Does Its Thing. In other words, these bureaucracies <laughs> are set up to do very specific things. They, they can do them very well, but they often they just do them well. So when you put them in a new setting or a new uh, circumstance, they will just do that no matter what. So in the case of, say, Special Operations Command, they were very good because they have been set up to do these types of things at uh, high-value targeting. They did all right. McChrystal came in and made it even better. Problem is, you start taking out certain people when you don't understand the structure of the insurgency, or let alone giving a, a care about um, the political impact of what you're doing. You're taking guys off the battlefield. You're doing it well. But you're actually making it strategically impossible to win, to actually achieve victory. Um you know, great great examples are the PRTs, which were just about sending as much money. So provincial reconstruction teams, which is just about throwing money around um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, they threw a lot of money out, and that was basically their metric of assessment. Um, what these achieved, particularly for the long-term political order, long-term economic order, is very tiny. Um, it's it's quite sad and quite maddening at times, but the, this is what the you know, cigar and we um, uh, uh, were looking at was how much money and what they spent it on. Problem is they never looked at strategic effectiveness of what they were doing. They were just looking at money that was wasted. So that's how you end up with that. It was a like $25 million um, uh, fuel station in Afghanistan that came out. You know, it was released a couple of months ago. You know, that, like, th- that's horrific. But, um and you know, it, that, and it better have like stuff.
0: wings like the one in Asmara um, yeah. you know, I um I, uh, I wow um, th- this race is, uh, I mean if if you look at de- at development and security projects, there, mm. there you keep seeing this sort of switch back and forth but with the pendulum going back and forth between two different ways of doing things, one mm-hmm. of which is, we do it. It costs an enormous amount of money because you have to plunk down somebody. You have to give them, you know, yep. an American lifestyle, air conditioning. It costs yep. billions of dollars. They, they, and they, they get
1: paid about two hundred fifty thousand dollars each for a years yep. worth of work. They,
0: they, you know, they get hardship pay. They mm-hmm. they authorize a project. They don't get to go see the project for security reasons because they can't yep. go out there because heaven forbid <laughs> somebody get hurt. And and uh, and then the Afghans don't or or, or the Iraqis uh, mm-hmm. don't develop their own ability to do this on their own is we're, we're, we're fishing for them instead of giving them a fish or, or teaching yeah. them how to fish. Um, yeah. well, and, and then alternately, so then people say, well, that's not working. So we'll just uh, empower the the Afghans or the Iraqis mm-hmm. to, uh, to do their own security and do their own development projects. But the problem is that, that in both cases, the government has been atomized by mm-hmm. by, by years of conflict and mm-hmm they they're usually both in the top 5 on the corruption perceptions index yeah. so we give them money and they, they you know it goes into the pockets of corrupt officials because that's the way things work
1: so well there, how, there's a great line that um if you're a, an afghan official if you only give out 5% you'll be killed if you give out 10% you're fine if you give out 15% you'll be killed <laughs> so basically, if you give out too little, you're dead. you give out too much, you're dead. Um, but uh, the, the certain atomization can actually be very beneficial, particularly in an area like southern Afghanistan, which wants to be atomized. They only want to care about their, their little valleys. The problem is, in those cases, is when the central government comes in and says, I'm putting my guy there, and I'm displacing your uh, sort of emergent power structures, you know, things that have always existed and how it's always operated, uh, and they like it that way. You might you might disapprove of it. There might be some negative repercussions from that, but that's just how they want to operate themselves. And so suddenly this guy in Kabul comes down, has no idea what's going on, doesn't even speak the language, and he's got an American attached to his arm and oh, he's also got a brigade combat team attached to him. And suddenly the, the people just don't want to co- cooperate because they know they're corrupt, they know they're going to take away their power structures and how it works, and they're going to mess that up. And it basically makes their life miserable. So, of course, they're going to fight, and, or at least not fight, just sort of accept the presence and the move through of, um, you know, for lack of a better term, some bad guys, uh, just to try to push them out. Say, so get, get, get out. We don't want you here. Just get out. Uh, And and that's sort of the the dynamic that operates. Uh, A a really good uh, book on this is is something I've been pushing to a lot of people, which no one seems to pick up, is uh, The Anti-Politics Machine. Now, this was actually written back in the 70s and was about the the World Bank and their reporting on SUTU and uh, sort of how they... uh, understood the economic development of that country at the time. And what exactly they were dismissing was the local politics of the region and how the development money was impacting them. This is now a big... um, uh, sort of a big topic, a big genre. There's a lot of books about this around, you know, you know just basically trashing guys like Jeffrey Sachs, um, the structural adjustment programs of the 80s and 90s where the World Bank and the IMF would come in and just say, you will do this uh, our way, not giving a crap, just to put it bluntly, about how that impacted local structures, local politics, everything. It's the same thing. It's the same thing over and over again. It's just different organizations doing the same thing again. Bureaucracies do do their things because that's what they've been set up to do, Um, and and it's just it's frustrating beyond belief. But it's one of those things very few people sort of take care for or quite understand, or they can often get on the cusp of it, but just sort of go off on a tangent or just turn turn into a, a partisan, just blinded. Um, political argument, which can be very disappointing because you know you do, they're just right there. But it's just, and this, this actually sort of goes well with into how the military operates because it's the same deal. And, uh, you know, it, its bureaucracy does its thing in its own way in the fact that these forces, like the U.S. military, has been built to fight the Soviets. There are some things on the fringes designed to fight other people when not the Soviets, but they're very tiny, they're ignored, and often they're hated. I mean, up until 9-11, SOCOM was hated within the Department of Defense, just hated because they threatened the budgets of the three big services. Now they're loved because of everything they've done, but there's still a threat to the overall budgets because they, they the services want that money for themselves. But at the same time, those services, and this is where I get into the functionally incapable. This is what I'm, like lessons two and three that I've been talking about here, why I say it's functionally incapable, is just that. To achieve victory in these types of wars and many others, even HADR follows similar principles. So humanitarian assistance development, uh, so disaster relief will follow, follow a lot of the same principles, just in a different manner. Um, can't do it. It, it. They're just not built to do this. They can send in a lot of forces in a lot of places very quickly, um, and but they don't know what they're doing once they get there. And this is where I start talking about the the functional incapa- functionally incapable of winning a war. that they can't operate in the in the manner necessary to achieve an end state, a properly crafted end state.
0: So, for time reasons, we're going to have to leave it here. But we, we've only made it through three of your seven points of why the United States can't win a war in in uh, uh, in the uh, 21st century, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to we're gonna do part two of this uh, coming up. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, you can find the podcast online at uh, com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash podcast. And you, t- you can subscribe for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with part two real soon. Bye-bye.